Good morning, church. Our Bible reading is from, it's taken from uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 20 down to 23, and continue from verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1 down to 5. Ruth chapter 2, verse 21. The Bible says, and Ruth... The more, go back to verse 21, by the way, sorry. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed he of the Lord, who had not left of his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of us next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabite said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast, by my young men, until they have ended all my harvest. Verse 22, And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. Verse 23, So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest. And dwell with her mother-in-law. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be dwell with thee? And now is not boss of a kindred with those with whose maidens thou wast. Behold, he withered barely in night in the trash floor. Verse 3, Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, but make no thyself known unto the men, until he shall have done eating and drinking. Verse 4, And it shall be, when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, and lay thee down. And he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. I hope you have your Bibles this morning. We'll be in the book of Ruth together. Thank you, Brother Eric and gentlemen, for the work you put into that special. Very nice. book of Psalm chapter 127 and verse 1 makes this statement, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. These are the two things that we do in life. We build and we keep. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. These are the two things I do. We make things and we take care of things. I think of these two items as what has been laid out by the psalmist in 127, except the Lord build the house. 
And so for those who are involved in the construction of a house, if you want to use that picture, for those who are involved in the construction of a house, if the Lord isn't behind it, you're wasting your time. But I think that at a greater depth than just the construction of the timbers and the cement is if the Lord isn't the one that's building your house, you're laboring in vain. Dad, I hope that the Lord is at the center of building your house. Mom, you can read all the psychology books that you want. Ultimately, the Lord needs to be the one who is building your house. And if the Lord is not keeping the city, the watchman wakes, pays attention in vain. I think in a city in which we live, in a culture and society that we live in, we understand this. This verse is a verse that I pray morning and night, Becky can be my witness. I pray this verse over our campus every day. For if the Lord is not the one who keeps the house and keeps the city, it doesn't matter how many security guards you have and how high you build your wall. If 35 guys want to scale your wall like happened just a few weeks ago to our neighbors, you watch in vain. What are you going to do? Build a bigger wall? You build a bigger wall and that just tells the rascals there's more on the other side that they should get. Except the Lord keep the city. The watchman labors in vain. Ultimately, protection comes from the Lord. And that's what I want us to see today. That He watches and He works for our good. Ultimately, it is the one, the Lord is the one who watches. He is the one who creates. He's the one who holds together and He does those things for our good. Do I say this morning, please think with me, do I say this morning, He will never let anything happen to you. Oh no, that's not what I'm saying. But whatever He lets happen will be for your good. And we know, Romans 8, and we know that He works all things together for good to them who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. I hope you know that this morning. Naomi came to know it. Ruth came to learn it. And I hope that the last few weeks have been a reminder, and today will be another reminder. A quick summary to Ruth chapter 2 and verse 20, and we will through all of the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 together. Just to summarize, you might remember Elimelech and Naomi left from Bethlehem, the house of bread, during a time of famine, went to Moab and lived there. Elimelech passed away. They took their two weakling sons, Malon and Chilion. I say weakling because that's what their names meant. One is weakling, the other one is frail. The two boys married in Moab, lived with their wives for ten years, had no children, and the two boys died, left Naomi there. No husband, no children, two daughters-in-law who are from a strange country. And she returned to Bethlehem, Orpah, decided to stay back. Ruth came with her, where you live, I will live, where you die, I will die, your God will be my God. These are the words of Ruth. And Ruth comes with Naomi back to Bethlehem. 
Naomi is broken as she returns to the house of bread, the place where she should find sustenance. She's broken. She says, don't call me Naomi. I'm no longer pleasant. Call me Mara. Bitter. She's broken. She made the statement, and we saw it last week. I left full. I've come home empty. Broken. And then she comes. And we saw last week as God provided in the providence of God, as Ruth went to go gleaning, and her hap was to be gleaning in the field of Boaz. And that's where we left off as she came back to Naomi that night after the best day ever. She came back after Boaz had invited her to dinner, and she not only had enough to fill herself, but had a to-go bag to take home to be for Naomi. And then as Boaz had instructed his servants, the reapers, drop handfuls on purpose in the field and let her gather them up. And she gathers up as much as 20 kilos of beaten barley. She's going to take this home. And she shows up at the house. And you remember Naomi's words that were there at the end of chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. Her words were, where in the world did you go to glean today? Because this is not what gleaners bring home. She's shocked out of her mind. And we left off last week with the words of, of Ruth at the end of chapter 2 and verse 19. The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And of course, that rings a bell in Naomi's mind. We'll pick up in verse 20 in just a moment. Before we go further in today's passage, can I draw your attention back to chapter 1 and verse 1? There's a statement that we passed over in chapter 1 and verse 1 that I think is very important for us to see a little bit of historical background to what's going on. Chapter 1 and verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. And we know a lot about when the judges ruled. In fact, there's a whole book that's given to this. You remember the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Followed then with the death of Moses in the beginning of... Joshua, the conquest of the Canaan land where the people of Israel came in and took over. Joshua died and left no leadership for the nation. And you get an entire book of 13 different judges who ruled. And it was well stated all throughout the book of Judges. There was no king in the land. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. If you want to drop a piece of paper here in Ruth, you can. You can just skim back with me back just a few pages. In my Bible, it's about four pages back to the book of Judges chapter 19. There's a story that happens in Judges chapter 19. Interesting, the end of the book of Judges, there's a couple of stories that get tacked on at the end of the book of Judges that do not happen chronologically. The rest of the book from chapter 1 coming down to about chapter 15, those stories are chronological as you see the different judges starting with Othniel and then Ehud and then Shamgar, Deborah going on forward through all 13 judges. And then at the end of the book, there's a few stories that actually chronologically happened sporadically throughout the book. I won't go into the math and details behind it, but I believe that what happened in Judges chapter 19 lines up very similar to what happens for the book of Ruth. And I'll just summarize what happens in Judges chapter 19, and the story spills over into chapter 20. The summary is like this, a man and his concubine, we might just say for ease of language, his wife, the two of them had a bit of a spat and a falling out. She ran away back to her parents' house. 
that man came to find her at her parents' house, sits down with the family. The parents help them with a little bit of marital counseling. And over a couple of days, it says a course of about three days, they sort things out. And now it's time for them to return home back to the Judean countryside. And as they're about to leave, the father-in-law says, no, hang on a second. How about you just stay an extra day with us? I think that's pretty common for the in-laws would like to spend more time with their children. And so here he says, hey, hang on, spend an extra day with us. So they stay the night. And the next morning he gets up to leave and the father-in-law says, hey, wait, how about another day? He does this for three days in a row and it's the end of the third day and the son-in-law says, I've had enough, I'm not staying another day, I'm out of here, and off they go. They begin their journey and they begin the journey at the end of the day. This is just a few hours before sunset. They leave and as they're walking, they come to, this is the husband and wife, they've got a couple of donkeys with them and they come across a little town called Jebus, J-E-B-U-S. Jebus is the place of the Jebusites. They're Gentiles, Canaanites. By the way, that little town, just for a little extra historical input, that town later becomes Jerusalem. King David conquers the Jebusites, and they put Jerusalem at that place. But at this moment in history, that place is the place where the Jebusites live. They're heathens. They are godless Gentiles, idol worshipers. And so this man with his wife come across this town and he says, it's better that we keep going and not overnight in this town. So they continue walking and they come to the town of Gibeah where is the Benjamites, people of Israel. They think to themselves, if we overnight in Gibeah instead of Jebus, will be okay and safe. And so they begin to settle down. In fact, at first they were going to just sleep in the street. And instead, an old man who lived in the town said, no, wait, I don't think this is a good idea for you to sleep in the street. Come stay at my house. They go to the house, and in the middle of the night, it's a repeat of Genesis chapter 15, where Sodom and Gomorrah breaks out. And the men of the city come to the door of this old man's house, beat on the door, give us the man. The man is terrified for his own life, and like a stinking coward, he throws his wife out to them. Terrible things happen. I won't go into details. By the next morning, she's dead. That ends up breaking out, that story, the fact that the Benjamites, who should have protected this couple, instead molested and raped and killed this lady, that story ends up becoming a major issue and breaks out the very first civil war of Israel. And before it's over with, almost all the people of Benjamin are completely dead. There's only 600 men left, and they're hiding in a cave. The, the reason I tell you that story is because I want you to see Judges chapter 19 and verse number 1. So look at Judges 19 and verse number 1 with me. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine, a wife, out of Bethlehem, Judah. The young lady who had run away and gone to be with her parents, the young lady who later in Gibeah, just three hours walk away, that young lady was from Bethlehem, Judah. Now as I come into the story of Ruth, I begin to see a number of things that are stated that cause my mind to think 
the culture and society of that day definitely degraded the position of a woman. You might remember last week, there was a statement in Ruth chapter 2. Come back over to Ruth chapter 2 and you'll get a chance to see this. Ruth chapter 2 and verse number 8. This was when Boaz first met Ruth. Remember, Ruth and, and Naomi are now in Bethlehem. Same place where this lady was from. Look at Ruth chapter 2 and verse 8. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here by my maidens. Stay with the young ladies that work for me. Let not thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not... They shall not touch thee. Boaz just made a statement to Ruth. If you'll come and work with my young ladies, stay here and glean in my fields. I've told my guys to not touch you. That should be understood. That should be understood. But there's a culture within the society that says women are not safe. Those two statements, stay with my maidens, I've commanded my young men not to touch you. Now that statement ends up carrying over, and I saw this come out in today's passage. So go ahead and come down to chapter 2 and verse 20. This is Ruth chapter 2 and verse 20. And watch as Naomi tags on to this very same line of thinking. Chapter 2 and verse 20. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto him, The man is near of kin unto us, one of his, our next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. So Ruth takes what Boaz says, twisted it just a little bit, because Boaz said, Work with my ladies... The men won't touch you. Now she goes, Ruth goes home, maybe a little bit of a difference in mentality, and she says, it's okay. He said, I can work with his young men. Now watch what Naomi says in verse 22. Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, here it is again, that thou go out with his maidens. Not go with his men. Go with his maidens. And here's the important phrase. That they meet thee not in any other field. The phrase that they meet you not in any other field. The Hebrew meaning behind it is no good some violence might fall upon you if you're away from the ladies. Another way to say it, Ruth, right now, in this current society, there's safety in numbers. Just be together with the other girls and you'll be okay. That's not right. It's not right for Ruth and that society. And as your pastor, I want you to hear me say it very firmly. It's not right for our society either. This is a problem. It needs to be addressed. That they meet you not in the field. That's no way to live. In that day, I see they did not honor women in that society and I believe at its core, here's an entire group of people who live in Bethlehem, Judah, that remember, maybe it was five years ago, 
Maybe it was 10 years ago, but we had one of our young ladies that got married to somebody else and within walking distance of our town, bad things happened to her. We know that bad things happen to young ladies in our town. That's what they said. And it's been repeated. Remember what we've said throughout the years, whenever the Holy Spirit repeats himself, he's making a point. God doesn't waste his time when he writes down words in the scriptures. And so now we've seen multiple times, it's not safe for a young lady in Bethlehem. And Naomi's subscribing to a mindset that says there's safety in numbers. That's not a good mindset. It'll get you by. It'll help you to get from one day to the next until the day that you're by yourself. And oh, there just needs to be a change in mindset. Just to help break that cycle, brothers and sisters, if that cycle is going to break within our society, and I hope you long, I long for that cycle to break within our society, if it's going to break in our society, it has to start in our homes. It has to start in our churches. And so dads, we spoke last week of generational sins. This is one of them. Generational sins that will destroy the lives of our daughters. And it's worth taking the time to teach our sons to respect ladies. And to respect our young women. You bring a young girl into your family. Adopt a young girl into your family so that she can be the servant girl to the family. That's wrong. I want you to hear me as your pastor to say that. You bring a young lady into your home to protect her. It's your job as her father to protect her, take care of her. You say, Pastor, where's this coming from? It's coming from the plethora of times that I sit and I counsel with young ladies. My heart breaks as I hear these stories be repeated. Oh, let us be marked as a people of God who love to show what fatherhood is supposed to look like. Dads, Step into the role. It's a different mindset than what this world will teach you. Dad, if you expect your wife to go and work a job to help with the family's finances, and then you expect on top of that that you come home from work, and she comes home from work, and she has dinner prepared, and she takes care of the children, and she washes the dishes, and she washes the laundry, while you sit like a lazy slob and watch TV... Shame on you. Get up off your lazy bum and help in the house. She doesn't have a job outside the house and she takes care of the morning, noon, and night. Well, throw some hands in and help out as well. And if you indulge in pornography, you're dis- degrading women. Your wife, the one on the screen, your come on guys, we can live better. And if you seek out a prostitute while you're at a trip away for work, you're degrading women. And if you catcall girls at the bus stop or at the grocery you're degrading women. And if you say off clean comments to somebody, whether it's in their direct messages or it's at work and you're flirting with them, you're degrading women. It's time for us as the men of God to step up and change how things are done in our society. How can we ever see a change in society if it's not happening in our church first? This is generational. 
You say, Pastor, where does it say that in the Bible? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 says it real clear. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. And if you're degrading anybody, you're not esteeming anybody. I want to see God do a change in our society, but I pray that that change will happen first in our church and in our families. Three months have passed. We're in Ruth chapter 2 again. Three months have passed. Naomi heard the words, I'm gleaning in the field of both. And I say that because of verse 23. You might remember last week, said barley harvest is the first of all of the harvest. Barley and then wheat and then grapes and then olives. Gift from Boaz. Come and glean in my fields for as long as you need to. I see here in verse 23, she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz. Ruth stayed there working with Boaz's girls. She gleaned until the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest. So three months have gone by now. And she's been she's been gleaning there. She's been living with Naomi. But in this time period, Naomi has had a change set, and now Naomi is beginning to think of a better way to live. And that's what I'm going to see here in verses one to five is a better way to live, and she's going to be able to begin to speak out about this better way to live. So here we are, three months in to this love story. I believe absolutely. Ruth has been bringing home, I don't know if she's been bringing home 20 kgs every day, but one thing's for sure, 20 kgs is much more than they need as the two of them to live on. I believe very strongly, and I'll support this later in the sermon, but I believe very strongly that perhaps she has been bringing home this barley, gleaned it in the field, some of it handfuls of purpose. She's bringing home this food, and she's been bringing it to Naomi. And I think Naomi's now doing a really good job of setting up a little canteen and selling out barley. She's got a little barley canteen going on. I don't know, maybe they've branched out. She's got a coffee shop going on too. I don't know. She's definitely making ends meet and more than just surviving. And can I just encourage, it's not the point of the passage, but can I encourage, don't just strive to survive. Strive to thrive. So put your hands to the work, do it with all might. And if you realize that this work is only allowing me to continue be right here for the rest of my life, if you don't see yourself changing in five years, you're not moving upwards, maybe it's time to find a different job. And so here, she's gleaning, she's bringing home, I think Naomi's selling it out the other side. That's perfectly fine, by the way. You're allowed to be a gleaner and you're allowed to sell what you get extra of. It's okay. And so here she is taking care of things. Naomi, verse 1, Naomi's not just thinking of herself. Then then Naomi, verse 1, Naomi, her mother-in-law said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? I think it's perhaps one of the most mentioned things that we spoke of last week. I said it in about two sentences, and it ended up being probably the most commented section of the sermon. The fact that Naomi was the mother-in-law, Ruth, and Ruth is the widowed young lady, and the fact that Naomi wants the best for Ruth is a big deal. You see, Ruth, uh, Naomi had, within our society, we would say she had every reason to try to keep Ruth at home. You go find him, not blow money, say one him. You stand in a family meal. 
And so here, this is, I think, a very important moment as Naomi says, I want what's best for you. That's the words that I hear in verse 1. Shall I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. Naomi's got some juicy gossip. She knows that Boaz is down at the threshing floor. And by the way, it's worth pointing out within that society at that time, everybody knows when it's time to harvest the wheat. Everybody knows when the barley has been gathered. And everybody knows when the landowners are down there threshing the wheat. It's worth noting that Boaz is going to sleep down there, and that's not normal. Boaz doesn't normally sleep in the fields. Maybe the reapers go out and sleep in the fields. But the owner of the business, he lives at home. But now, because of the time of year, most likely, I think, for security reasons, he's going to sleep right there with the harvest. Perhaps the reapers have their section they're going to sleep at, and Boaz himself, if something happens, he's going to know about it firsthand. I don't know if maybe he's hired some extra security for the night. But it's well known, and Naomi's paying attention to the fact Boaz is down at the threshing floor tonight. Verse number three. So she says to Ruth, Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee. Put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. Ruth, go get cleaned up. Have a shower. Get some good smelling perfume on. You remember that blue dress that he saw you wearing? Get that blue dress on. Naomi's playing matchmaker, matchmaker, right? And she says, hey, Ruth, make sure you smell good. And when you go down to the threshing floor, don't let him see you. Hide back first. I don't think that what Naomi's doing is in any way crooked. She's got some wisdom. And we've seen the wisdom of Naomi throughout the time together. I think she's got some wisdom here. And she's not at all saying do immoral and we're going to see that there will be no immorality in this but here's Naomi saying I think I see some pieces coming together let me help you see them too verse number four it shall be when he lies down and thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie just pay attention where he went and laid down and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down he will tell thee what thou shalt do pay attention to where he goes and uncover his feet. Again, there's nothing immoral about this. this. This was a Hebrew custom. Uncover his feet and lay yourself down. Now Ruth replies, verse 5, and she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. I think this is a really good point in the sermon for us to take a minute and talk about the work of the kinsman redeemer because he's just, she has just made the statement that he is our near kinsman. And what he's going to do, or be asked to do, is to redeem their family. So let's take just a minute and we'll talk about the kinsman redeemer and the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was needed, according to the Old Testament, at three different points in someone's life. If they found themselves at one of these three places, the first one would be the loss of land due to a financial need. If there was a loss of land due to a financial need, and you and I can kind of understand a little bit about this, uh, let's say if perhaps your family ran into some financial need 
you could sell a portion of your land and you'd receive money for that. But the goal of the Old Testament and God's working with the people was that they would not sell their land out permanently, but instead if they sold the land, that land was intended to be a part of the family forever. And yet, if you sold the land, you can't just come back and say, hey, I sold it to you, you got to give it back to me. That's not how life works. And so there was a provision for this, and I'll read it for you. This is Leviticus 25, verses 23 to 25. It says, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the land of your possession you shall grant a redemption for the land. There's to be a provision for redeeming the land. If thy brother, this is verse 25, if thy brother be waxen poor and has sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. So it's very possible within that society, if one brother sold his own land, it was very possible for another brother to come along weeks later, months later, years later, and redeem that land back to the family. Within that culture, it would be understood you don't buy somebody else's land and build upon it. Remember Ahab's story, how Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard? And it was such a deep, dark thing. Naboth said, no, this is my land and my family's land. I'm not going to sell it. And so Ahab cheated and stole and ended up having Naboth killed so that he could take that. And God ends up cursing Ahab over that. That was in the book of 1 Kings. The land could be sold, and you can just imagine, example would be a wheat field. Sell off the wheat field. The guy who buys the wheat field is going to plant and harvest for several years, but eventually someone in the extended family can come and redeem that land back to themselves. It goes back to the family. Another reason for redeeming would be the loss of freedom as a slave due to debt. And this one comes from Leviticus chapter 25 also. Further in Leviticus 25 verse 47, if a sojourner or a stranger waxes rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him was poor, and sells himself unto the stranger or sojourner by thee, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him, either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him or his family may redeem him. So you can imagine one person, for whatever reason, finds himself so far in debt that the only way that he can get out of that debt is to sell himself as a slave. But there's a provision here for a kinsman redeemer to come along, and the kinsman redeemer can buy him back and bring him back to the family. So the provision was for loss of freedom. There's one more, it's in the book of Deuteronomy, and this is the loss of the family name due to death. Example is exactly what we're seeing here. Amalek died, Milan and Chilion died. There's no one to carry the family name now. And so this is what Deuteronomy 25 spoke to. Here's Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and has no child... Dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her, hus- her husband's brother shall go in unto her, take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And so here we 
the work of a kinsman redeemer who can help with purchasing back land, can help with purchasing back a slave, a brother or cousin brother that was a slave or a nephew, or here even to carry on the family name. So the wife who married the older brother, the wife does not have any children with the older brother, the older brother dies. Then a younger brother can come along and marry her. And it's important to notice the words there, marry her. But then when they have the firstborn son, the firstborn son takes the name of the older dead brother. So that, in the words here of Deuteronomy 25, 6, so that we don't lose a name in Israel. Let that family name continue on. So this is the work of a kinsman redeemer. And before I go further to the rest of the story, I think it's worth pointing out the work that our Lord Jesus Christ has done for you and I, our kinsman redeemer. For we lost possessions, we lost everything we had at the fall. When Adam fell in sin, our federal head, Adam, our forefather, when he fell in sin, when he was in paradise and had everything perfect between him and God, everything was there and God ran Adam out of the garden, placed an angel at the entrance of the garden with a flaming sword, said, do not dare come back in to partake of the tree of life. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ came on our behalf as our kinsman redeemer, and he allowed the sword to fall upon him. He took death upon himself so that you and I could have life again. Oh, what a blessed gift that is. And I think of even from the standpoint of slavery and how you and I are in bondage to slave, as slaves to sin. As Scripture says in the book of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 17, you were servants of sin. But He came along and He set you free. You've not, or you have obeyed Him from the heart, that doctrine that was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you are now servants of righteousness. He has redeemed us. Jesus Christ has taken that place as a kinsman redeemer. And then you think of the part of a name. The fact that in our sin we are alienated from our Heavenly Father. And yet the Lord Jesus comes along, John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe upon his name. Oh, we get the opportunity to be made right with God because of our kinsman redeemer who came with his to redeem us unto the Father. Boaz knows the work of a kinsman redeemer. He's grown up knowing that this may be a responsibility for him. For the privilege of a mighty man of wealth is not so that he can consume it upon his own lust, but instead so that he can be a channel of blessing. God blesses so that you will also be a blessing. And so here's Boaz, having been given the mighty man of wealth, the ability now to help others. And we come into the third section of the sermon I see from chapter 3, verse 6, down to verse 18. is an honorable proposal. Verse number 6. She went down, this is Ruth, went down under the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, they've had a great harvest, by the way, he went down to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I'll be honest. If I'm sleeping, and I think I'm all, all by myself, and I wake up in the middle of the night because my feet are uncovered, 
And I realized, wait a second, there's a woman at my feet. You better believe I'm going to be afraid too. <laughs> so he, he was afraid. What in the world is going on here? Verse 9, and he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, thine handmaid. I take special note of these words. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. She's not saying, take your skirt and cover it over me like a blanket. It's not what she's saying. This is an ancient Hebrew way of saying, just like here, I'll use, the, I'll use the words, in fact, I think it's Ruth 2 verse 12 that Boaz said these words, and maybe this will help. Boaz said this to Ruth when he first met her. He said this. Then she said, uh, sorry, verse, verse 12, The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given, a, given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. There's the picture. You've come to trust under the wings of the Lord. The Lord has spread his wings. Like a mother hen over her chicks, you've come to trust under the wings of the Lord. And so Ruth says to Boaz, I'm here at your feet. Spread your skirt over me. You are, the, the phrase she puts them right together. Spread the skirt over me. You are my near kinsman. The idea is be a covering for me and all that I represent. What did Ruth represent? She represented the inheritance of Malon and Chilion, of Elimelech, of Naomi. She's the physical representation of all of that. This is not just marry me. This is Take to yourself and cover all of us. We need more than just safety in numbers. We need protection. We need to be covered. And I see here in this moment, the land is in jeopardy. The family name is in jeopardy. The name is about to go out from Israel and be gone. And so she says, spread your skirt over us. Verse 10. His response. He recognizes it. He knows this is a marriage proposal. And for some of us, we might go, wait a second, the guy's supposed to ask the lady. And here the lady is asking the guy. She's saying, hey, marry me, Boaz, and not just marry me, but marry me and look after everything. And, and he's, she says, marry me. And, and his response tells us how big of a shock this is to him. Look at verse 10. He said, blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning. Inasmuch as thou followest not men, whether poor or rich. I have a feeling that Boaz is a little bit older here. He's pointing out the fact that she's not running after some young guy. And let's just be honest, she's probably between 30 and 35 years old herself. She's already been married for 10 years to the weak one. And so now here she's, she's exactly 18 years old here. And so here she comes, but he definitely wasn't expecting it. I know that we said last week as she reached him parched corn and their fingers probably touched, his heart definitely went pitter-patter, and he was pretty excited about that moment, and he's definitely been paying attention to her, but he's probably in his mind thinking, I'm out of her league, or she's out of my league. <laughs> I'm too old, there's no way that they'll, she'll never want to have me as a husband. Again, I don't know. He's never married. He's widowed. I don't know. But here's the poor guy. What's he got to look forward to? Harvest. Go down there and sleep next to the corn so nobody steals it. And he wakes up in the middle of the night scared out of his mind. Maybe one of the rascals came and took a nap at his feet. 
And now instead, it's Ruth and she's proposing to him? He's out of his mind. What in the world? I'm not supposed to get proposed to by a lady. And then on top of it, a beautiful lady who put on perfume and took a shower today. What a blessing. And now, he says in verse 11, And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. I love that phrase. The whole city knows that you're a virtuous woman. That, by the way, is why I say I think she's been taking gleaning and taking it home and passing it over to Naomi, and Naomi's been running her canteen of barley sales. Why do I say that? Because, because Ruth is known throughout the whole city as a virtuous woman. I won't take the time to turn over to Proverbs 31, but happy Mother's Day. Moms, I hope you're filling the role of Proverbs 31. You know what Proverbs 31 says about the virtuous woman? She works with her hands. She gets up before the sun comes up. She prepares the meals for the family. She sews things together so that her husband's heart will safely trust in her and her children rise and call her blessed. And oh, by the way, Psalm 31, written by Solomon. Where did he get the idea for a virtuous woman? Solomon, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Ruth. I bet you Solomon's grown up hearing stories about great-great-grandma and how virtuous she was, and that story has passed down. And by the way, if I can just be open for just a moment, I don't think Solomon got the idea of virtuous woman from his mom. I won't dwell there long, but he definitely had a lot of respect for his great-great-grandma. She rises in the morning and she takes care of her family and maybe sometimes that means she has to go and do a work of gleaning in the field. But one thing's for certain, her children rise and her grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and call her blessed. And Boaz says, I'd be honored to marry you. Young ladies, the world will tell you, put on some makeup, show some skin. That's what makes a girl attractive. But to a godly man, a virtuous woman is what's attractive. Verse 12, there's a problem. Boaz points out the problem, verse 12. Now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Howbeit, there is a kinsman nearer than I. I think in that moment, I can almost hear Ruth audibly sigh. And we might as well say it was a sigh that kind of echoed through all of Israel and definitely through Bethlehem as they all went, there's some sorry rascal that's between you and her. Doggone. Verse 13, tarry this night, he says. Just stay here. It shall be that in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. You know what he just said? As strong as you can say in the Hebrew way, as the Lord liveth, that's, I promise you, young lady, that if he won't get in the way, I'm marrying you. That's what he just said. I'm there for you. And he says, stay here until the morning. I see so much honor throughout this passage. So much honor. There is nothing immoral happening. Notice he says, remain at my feet. 
He didn't say, come up here and I'll hold you and we'll cry and we'll try to figure this out and we'll talk until the sun rises. Nope, just lay there at my feet. You've come with your request. I've got your answer. And I'll do my very best to make this happen. And boy, I sure would love to marry you. But we're not there yet. There's so much honor. There's honor in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 1 as Naomi says to Ruth, I want what's best for you. And there's honor from Ruth to Naomi in chapter 3 and verse 11 as she acts as a virtuous woman within that society. And there is honor from Boaz to Ruth as he says, stay here at my feet. And oh, by the way, he doesn't say, go home. You know why he can't say go home, right? Because there's rascals in the fields. They're coming around to try to steal the wheat, and you know already that the society does not care about women. He can't send her home. Stay here. To an even greater degree, nobody can know that she's been there. For if people find out that she's been there, the city will no longer say she's a virtuous woman. He's protecting her honor in this moment. I want to go even further, and moms and dads, you'll follow me with this, and I want you to help me with teaching your children. He did not take advantage of her. Why? Because he was honoring her because there was somebody else who was closer. He doesn't even know for sure that he's going to get to marry her. He protected her. There's so much honor in that passage. Verse 14, it, this, that honor is a beautiful thing, by the way. Verse 14, she lay at his feet until the morning. And she rose up before one could know another. In other words, it's just starting to get light, but it's still too dark. You see somebody walking, but you can't really tell who they are. She rose and she went to the house. She went back into the city. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came under the floor. He's got to keep it quiet. People don't need to know that, there's, that she's been here. He'll take care of this issue, but he doesn't want her honor to be destroyed. Verse 15, and he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. I'm going to send some food with you to your mother-in-law. That's what he's about to say. Bring your veil. Your mother-in-law is a good woman too. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. That in itself is an amazing thing. And I know we can just read it and just go right past it. She came with the veil, right? She's, she's covered with the veil, and he says, bring me the veil. You're going to go home, but when you go home, I want you to take something with you because your mother-in-law is a good lady. I want you to have some a little extra. And so here she comes with the veil, and now six. It's, the, the Holy Spirit made a big point of making sure that we knew it was six, now, I want you to watch this. So there she is. She's holding it. And he goes over to the big bag of the harvest, and he does six scoops. And it doesn't say they're ephahs or they're bushels or anything like Six scoops, six measures. So I think he's got a bowl there. And he takes the bowl, and he reaches down with the bowl. So hold, hold, hold your veil there for just a second. And it's one, two, three. And in natural life, that would be enough. Because, like, how much are you going to give her, right? Three scoops. You say, all right, there you go. Take that and take that home. But he didn't stop at three. There's four, five, six. And when you hit six and you're the recipient, you're starting to think, 
uh, this is going to get too heavy. He's just pouring out blessings upon her and her mother-in-law. He has no idea we're going to get married or we're not going to get married. I'm just going to keep on being a blessing to this lady. And she's going to go home today. She's going to be filled up and overflowing, but not too much to where it's a burden where she carries it to the house. This guy's amazing. I just can't get over him. And I think of our Heavenly Father and how He's blessed us with manifold blessings. I hope the words of First Peter 1 verse 3 just echo through your mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ to an inheritance incorruptible. Your inheritance from Him will never rot away. And it's undefiled. It's perfect. And it will not fade away. And it's reserved in heaven for us. And you are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Our Heavenly Father showers us with blessings that we do not deserve. So then Ruth goes home to Naomi, verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, who art thou, my daughter? I think it's still early morning. And this is kind of a way of her going, Ruth, is that you? She told her all that the man had done to her. She said, these six measures of barley gave he me. He said to me, go not empty to your mother-in-law. Then said she, I love these words. Naomi is going to be as blunt, honest as a then said Naomi, sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter shall fall. And you would think that maybe that means just hang out here and in a couple of days we'll get our answer. But it's not a couple of days. For the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. Manya, he got one blood ding ding little bell blowing in. M he wants to straighten this thing out and get married to this girl now. <laughs> and Naomi says, just stay here at the house. You don't need to go gleaning today because there's a really good chance by the end of the day he's got things straightened out and you don't need to be a gleaner anymore. You're going to be a wife. Just hang on. Just hang on, Ruth. He's going to figure this thing out. He won't be able to rest until he straightens it out. And over the last few weeks, we've seen a number of things from the book of Ruth. We've seen God's faithfulness the life of Naomi, the fact that we need to be thankful even in those times of emptiness because God's using those times of emptiness to bring us back to Him. God does all things for our good and His glory. Last week we saw the providence of God as God began to work within their lives and even the perchance which field she ended up in. And today we've seen the protection of God. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain. Except the Lord city, the watchman wakes in vain. You realize that we need the protection of the Lord in our life. I might say like Boaz, the covering of his skirt over us. For apart from the covering of the Lord, apart from the watching, apart from the keeping of the Lord, we labor in vain. I started with Psalm 127 verse 1. And I want to finish with Psalm 127, verse 2. It's the very next verse, and here's what it says. It's vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late and to eat the bread of sorrows 
It's vain. And I would say, if you're going to be successful at work and successful in life, you're going to get up early. You're going to be regimented in your life. You're going to stay up late some nights to try to accomplish a task and get done with it. You'll eat the bread of sorrows as you go through temporary times of life while you see this is only a season to get to the next part. It says, vain, apart from God. And then he finishes with this statement, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. You know where the most restful sleep comes from? Knowing that you have someone who's watching you. He's taking care of you. I can just see with this picture of Boaz, as Boaz is lying there on the floor, in the threshing floor, he looks to Ruth and he says, you don't have to watch over your shoulder tonight. You don't have to worry about what's coming. I'm going to give my beloved sleep. I will spread my skirt and I will take care of you. And you realize the very same thing happens with our Heavenly Father. If you're a believer and you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, so he gives his beloved sleep. You can rest knowing he's in control. That is the protection of God. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we would rest in you. I pray we would not toil apart from you, for it is you who keeps the house, it is you who watches, it's you who builds. We cannot do that apart from you. Far be it from us to be lazy and say, oh, God will just do it. Silly mindset. But if we try to do it apart from you, we're laboring in vain. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rest as you spread your skirt. Oh, I ask you, Lord, spread your skirt across over us. And allow us to find peace in you. For it's in your beautiful name I ask it. Amen.